Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. You hear about workforce retention issues in government, and agencies are ever more getting creative in recruitment of its employees. Especially in the world of many choices and competition to attract talent, the technology is abundant. And as older generations near retiring age, agencies face challenges in keeping pace with the quickly changing environment. For Colonel Jen Savada, Head of Talent Management for Air Force Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance, recruitment is her priority. I think her perspective provides another facet to the conversation. All right, Jen, welcome to GovCast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Me too. Um, I'm excited to talk to you about your uh, Air Force career and what you're currently doing. I don't know if it's been mentioned, but I'm actually an Army brat, so I, I totally appreciate everything about the military and your service, so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. And being an Army brat, you've traveled around quite a bit, probably, and have experienced it yourself in some ways. Yes. Yes, totally. Every time my dad was deployed, I felt that we followed him around his entire career, so I, I appreciate everything about the military life. Thank you for sticking with it, too. <laughs> So your Air Force career has offered a wide range of leadership opportunities. What have been some of your favorite assignments? So I think my absolute favorite assignment was the assignment that I had right before this one, where I was the commander of the Air Force Technical Application Center. It is the Department of Defense's sole organization that does nuclear treaty monitoring. So it helps the U.S. government actually verify and determine whether or not um, nefarious actors have been not following the nuclear treaties that we have. And the people are amazing. They're extremely smart. Uh, There are over 1,000 people at 16 locations worldwide. Um, The organization has over 3,000 sensors, everything from underground and up into space and everything in between. And the mission itself was amazing because I was there during the time when the Iranians and the U.S. were looking at signing the uh, JICPOA agreement. And so we were able to try to provide as much information as we could to the government to help them with those negotiations. Wow. Okay. What motivated you to join the Air Force to begin with? So it's a funny story. You actually asked me this. Um, I was a high school athlete. I played basketball and soccer, and I wanted to be a college athlete. And I was recruited by several universities to play sports, whether it was either one of those two. And West Point in the Air Force Academy recruited me to play basketball. Um, I went out and visited West Point. I went out to visit the Air Force Academy. And then I had a couple other schools that I was going to visit. But the first time that I got to the Air Force Academy. It was the first time I'd been west of the Mississippi. And I actually lived in Wisconsin, which is the state that borders the Mississippi. But I got out to the mountains and I saw what it was. And I had this sense of awe and pride in what I saw from the Air Force Academy cadets. So I decided that I was going to take the leap and go do something that I'd never experienced before. Nobody in my family had ever been in the military besides my grandfathers, who were both doctors in World War II. So it was something new and unique and something that I wanted to be a part of. So I went to the Air Force Academy and did four years and and graduated with my degree in human factors engineering, which is a a behavioral sciences degree. And then from there, it's been an amazing 25 years almost. Wow, 25. In the Air Force. It's hard to believe. You don't look like it should should have been 25 years. That's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) So you got to do a lot of traveling, I assume. I have. I've uh, lived overseas twice, officially. So I've been in the UK and England. That was my first assignment after I graduated the Air Force Academy and intelligence school. And what was unique about that experience was not only did I feel like I was a part of the US mission, but we also worked with coalition partners on a regular basis. It was during the time when it was almost like a coup of the day in Africa. 
there was a lot going on in Rwanda, in the Congo, and in other parts of uh, Africa. And there was also all of the things that were going on in Europe with Bosnia and Herzegovina and all of the strife and the war that was happening. So it was a great place to be as a first assignment. Um, I also been over to South Korea, which on the other spectrum is a very unique problem set, which has continued for 50 years. And it probably will still continue. I actually spent most of my time in South Korea, in Yongsan specifically. So that, I loved it. What a small world. Right. And I don't know if you've heard much about it, but in the military life that I've experienced, you hear you know, the six degrees of separation, that you're, you're always connected to somebody in some way wherever you are in the world. I, I've experienced that. Have you? I absolutely had. Just today, I had a phone conversation with somebody that I had never met that somebody introduced me to, and we were talking about uh, some program, and I mentioned the name of someone, and he was really good friends with him, and I'm really good friends with him. Wow. And so it happens all the time. I hear that all too often. And actually, now being in D.C., um, I've, I've run into so many old classmates that were in Korea. <laughs> it's like, why, why D.C. now? <laughs> well, I guess it is the government space and everything. So what brought you to D.C. specifically? So I've been in D.C. minus my time at that Air Force organization um, in Florida since 2008. And our Air Force assignment system um, has been one where they put you in positions based on the experiences that you need to attain. So when I got here in 2008, I joined the joint staff and worked there for two years working on integration and interoperability issues. Then I hopped up to Fort Meade, did a, a command job at the National Security Agency, did Army War College in Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, but it was still sort of the D.C. vibe at times. Um, and then came back to D.C. after that to do a job with the Army Strategic Studies Group where I was the Air Force representative to try to give them some sanity and understanding <laughs> of Air Force capabilities. And then finally over to the CIA where I helped to try to integrate um, Department of Defense and CIA things that they do, operations. And then I headed to Florida, and now I'm back again. Before I took over the job that I'm currently in, which is the head of talent management for Air Force Intelligence, I actually did outreach to the private sector. And my boss, who's Lieutenant General Jameson, really had this passion that we needed to build better relationships with the private sector, whether it was think tanks or universities or nonprofits or small to medium businesses, and try to determine and help bring in their capabilities, their different thought processes or different analysis, so that we could build a better Air Force force, both from the ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance side, as well as just from being human beings that are informed on current situations. So what are the biggest challenges when it comes to talent management in the Air Force? Right now, the biggest challenge we have is that we have amazing people, but the private sector has a lot of amazing opportunities. So we have the biggest problem probably of retaining talent. When it was in the 90s and people weren't hiring on the private sector, on the outside world, as we like to call it, we were able to retain a lot of people because we had meaningful work. We paid fairly well. We had opportunities to travel. We had opportunities to lead large programs at very junior ages. But now with a lot of the opportunities that are happening in artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, data science, software engineering, people are jumping at those opportunities and then leaving to go do that in the private sector. I would say that another challenge that we have is actually bringing in people who do have those capabilities and allowing us to apply them into our normal mission sets, because where we're going is we're really moving from that industrial age into the digital age, and we need to be able to support that. Okay. I have not thought of it in that way. It's always been, especially with my, my peers and friends and growing up, it's always been 
oh, I, I want to go to college, so I'm going to join the Air Force uh, to get a scholarship. But then I never thought of it in the digital aspect way of, of retaining the workforce. So that's pretty interesting. If you think about it, when somebody, if they go to college, they join the Air Force and then they go to college after they join, they get skills within the Air Force that, that they can use during their college degree and on the outside. The flip is true when somebody goes to college and then they join the Air Force. We spend a lot of time and money, depending on your specialty, investing in them. And they come out, for example, we have people who do cyber hacking. They're offensive and defensive cyber operators, and they, they build cyber effects for us. Well, those skills are extremely useful when you're looking at white hat hackers and people who are on the side of trying to help other organizations prevent attacks on their networks, whether it's big industry or a small startup. Everybody needs cybersecurity nowadays. So how can the Air Force improve retention? What You talked about the challenge of retaining them. Now, how? What from your point of view, how can you retain them? So I think the biggest thing that we need to look at is how we're doing our processes of talking to people and placing people. Up until now, our processes have been very focused on an industrial age. We've always done it this way for the last 50, 60 years, where we have an open billet, we have an open job, and we have one person or two people or three people that need to go into that job. And instead of asking them, hey, would you like to move overseas or would you like to go do this job? We just say, okay, you're going to go. And if they don't want to go, they say, thank you, I'm, I'm done, and they leave. Now we've actually opened up the discussion where we call people and actually treat them as human beings and say, we have this opportunity for you. Would you be interested? If they say no, we go on to the next person. And eventually, usually there's one person that would love that idea, whether it's they have family close by, they've always wanted to visit there, or they are really excited about the job and the missions that's to be done. That's interesting because uh, my dad, being in the Army side, I think it, a similar thing happened where I think he was a tanker. I'm not sure the specific role that entails, but uh, they told him, all right, you need to change. And I, and I think it was a similar thing where it was like, okay, okay you're going to do this now. And that was back in, what, the 80s or 90s. So I, I'm curious if it had changed at all. It hadn't. That. It really oh, hadn't. Okay. Um, I would say that for our career field within the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance career field, we, starting in October, we rescinded all of our old documentation that told us how we should do assignment matching, how we develop and retain people and train people. And we've developed a new framework to try to get over some of these issues and hurdles because we want to keep our talent. We love the Air Force. They love the Air Force. And if they could have some say in their careers, then they would stay. Oh, yeah, of course, definitely. Moving over into kind of your previous experiences with the defense or are you still in the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum? Yes. Okay. So my volunteer job, um, it's oh, part-time, okay. part non-paid volunteer, is uh, as the Director of External Engagement for the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. And I also run the D.C. chapter for the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Wow. And what the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum is, is it's a 501c3 nonprofit where our goals are to inspire, connect, and empower people who are passionate about making positive change within the national security space. And that is all-inclusive. It could be a private citizen who's just interested. It could be a member of a small startup. It could be an entrepreneur themselves. It could be an investor, um, civilians in the, in the military space. It could be, you name it, somebody from a university. And we try to bring these disparate communities together and talk about important problems and ways to change and then work together to solve those problems. What made you want to get involved in that? 
It's a really funny story, actually. I, in my previous job on active duty, um, the one that I was doing private sector outreach, I went to a one-day conference and just randomly sat at a table and started talking to the gentleman across the table from me. And he said, wow, what you're doing in your real job sounds like what I do in my part-time job as the executive director of this organization called the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Have you heard of them? I said, I've never heard of them. So at that point in time, they'd only been around for about four years. And they were started by a group of young officers and had really been a grassroots effort. And so Jim Perkins was his name. He handed me his business card. And from that point forward, I went to the first meeting and I was hooked because it was the people who were passionate about national security and passionate about trying to make things better and doing it in a positive rather than a destructive way. How has that forum grown and evolved over the past few years? So it's been amazing to watch. As I said from the beginning, it was kind of a small group of officers. Over the last year to year and a half, we have grown to over a thousand members around the globe. And in the DC chapter alone, we have on average between 80 to 150 people at our monthly events. And we are starting to bring in some really interesting people to talk about the challenges that they face within the government. And then we work to try to help solve those problems. We've also developed national programs that had been around but hadn't really been as robust as they had been. Um, we are in our second year of a Firestarter Fellowship where people can uh, apply and then based on their application and uh, you know, when you go through and you rack and stack and then you select the ones that are going to be selected, they get to work on a problem that they want to work on that deals with a national security issue. And we give them a, a small stipend to allow them to do that. We have a Gutenberg program, which is our writing program to help people get published when they want to write about national security issues and how to make change and how to build networks and work together for the common good. We have a national conference that meets every year. This year, it's going to be in D.C. Oh. in September. <laughs> Dates to be announced soon. Um, last year, we were in Denver, and we had about 250 people that came together from around the U.S. And then my role as the director of external engagement is really to try to work with government um, partnerships, so government advocacy with Congress, as well as with uh, corporate partnerships to try to make sure that we can continue this work as we move along. So how do you apply some of the brainstorming and discussions that take place at these events at your work in the Air Force? It is amazing the amount of information and the discussions that people who are part of the defense entrepreneurs have on a range of topics. It is everything from technology and innovation to talent management, like you said. And what's nice about our environment is that it's not all in person. We have a Slack channel that sometimes I can't keep up on because the, the discussion and conversation is so active that you never know which one you want to be a part of. And we tend to talk about these types of topics. And so there are a bunch of us that were going back and forth about culture and about why can't we keep people in the military or in government and what do we do about it and how do we make change? And so that really helped me to influence the team that I have to build this new talent management framework to look to the future of how do we retain, develop, and then keep these people for the digital age. How has the role of an intelligence officer in the Air Force transformed since you started? It's been amazing to watch. I actually had this conversation today um, at my desk because I was talking to a younger officer and they were asking about what happened to targeteers in the Air Force. And I look at how when we started and when I started a long time ago, we were very stovepiped. You were either a technical expert or you were kind of in operations. You supported the flying operations, but they really didn't cross. And then all of a sudden we came back to now everybody's a generalist because we we stovepiped too much and we didn't have enough cross flow across them. 
Well, now we're in a situation where we look to the future of what Air Force intelligence should be. And if you think about the way that Air Force intelligence and the larger intelligence community used to gather the majority of their information, it was from classified sources. So if you think of a pyramid and the bottom of the pyramid is the, the main base and the top is the pinnacle, and you go up about three quarters of the way, draw a line, that bottom three quarters is really where we gained information from a classified environment. And the top little triangle was what we gained from reading the newspaper or listening to the radio or watching TV. But now that triangle is inverted. And now if you think about it, almost a lot of our tips and cues that come from information come from social media. They come from the 24-hour news cycle. They come from anything that is out there. And we still have our very pristine information that comes from a classified environment. But we need to know now, how do we gather all of that? How do we use it in order to make sure we're not using fake news, that we're using real news? And then being able to, to weave that in with that pristine classified data that we have. So watching that transformation has been really interesting. And looking at how we've changed from a one and a zero, yes or no, but to why. Why is this happening? What is next? And then also trying to determine where do we need to go in the future? Where do we need to go? <laughs> I think that we need to have a baseline understanding of what artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, data analytics, software development, what it all means. No matter if you are an analyst who's looking at the Russian problem and trying to figure out what Putin is doing, or if you are somebody who's looking at cyber networks and trying to figure out how do we exploit a cyber network. And the reason is, is because the world is going digital. And if we don't understand it and understand what a neural network is, if we don't understand what natural language processing gives us, then we're not using the capabilities to our best ability. How have you been incorporating some of these technologies, if at all? Or is it still kind of in the phase of, well, we don't really know what to do with them quite yet? So I would tell you, one of the really interesting things that the Air Force has done was started by Captain Mike Kanan, who was in the Air Force ISR, Air Force Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Office. So he works with me. He proposed to the Air Force to treat computer languages the same as we treat foreign languages. So right now we have a slew of people who go to the Defense Language Institute and other places to get language training. And they come out as a proficient Russian speaker or Chinese speaker or Tagalog or some other language. And then they help us to, to look at the intelligence across those those um, countries and areas that speak those languages. Computer languages are very similar in the respect that we need to understand them and we need to have people who are proficient in those languages. So he put together a proposal that the Air Force has accepted and has rolled out where we now are testing people in their language proficiency and paying them to maintain that proficiency so that we can use those skills to help us develop machine learning algorithms that allow us to analyze our data better and really take all of that large data and put it into something that's usable that we can then answer the why instead of the what. Along that sense, how can the Air Force recruit people to take advantage of some of these technologies? What are some of the methods that, whether you have personally did them yourself or if maybe you have something in mind, what, what does that look like? So I think the biggest thing to know is that the Air Force is always good at recruiting technical talent and have been because we're always known as the innovative service that's out there. I think one of the things that we need to do is that once we get them in the service is to open up their opportunities to continue their education. 
So one of the things that we're doing in my office, and then we're working with the Defense Innovation Board, we're working with the other services and some other people, is to build what I'm calling a training catalog, where we typically maintain a catalog of all the training opportunities that are inherent to the, the Department of Defense. You can go to this class because it's offered by uh, the Defense Acquisition University. But what we're doing now is we're looking across the private sector to universities, to private companies, to other big organizations that have learning platforms, and putting together a catalog so that everybody from the lowest individual up into the enterprise can look to see what opportunities that are, exist, one, and two, what opportunities are most valuable to them, either within their mission or across the entire enterprise. It's never existed, and it's always been word of mouth, or somebody says, hey, did you hear about this program? I did it. I loved it. I think you'd like it too. But that doesn't help when you have, in my enterprise, we have 35,000 airmen who are part of the ISR enterprise. Have you or has the Air Force been looking into some of the other service branches in order to get inspiration or maybe use cases? We are always talking and working together. I briefed our talent management framework to a, a community of interest just this last week to try to figure out what other ideas exist and what the other services and parts of the Department of Defense are doing, working with the Defense Innovation Board on their talent recommendation from the Defense Innovation Board committee and trying to figure out how do we make this a reality. Uh, so there's a lot of communication. There's a lot of interest. I know that Admiral Sharp at NGA has talent management as one of his top issues that he's concerned about and wanting to change. Air Force A1, our personnel system, is doing the same thing. So it's, it's interesting and it's fun and it's exciting to be a part of it because we're on the cutting edge of how we're going to move into the future. What is next for you? Being in the Air Force, I mean, is it typically something where you, you know, every two years you're sent somewhere or um, I know how that is myself. So I'm, I'm curious what you have in mind for yourself, whether that's from your own doing or from you being told where to go. <laughs> so that the nice thing is that we're changing how we do our system. So for me to be told is probably not going to be what happens. There will be a discussion and a look out across the enterprise to see where my skills fit the best and where I would like to go. I am one of these people that like to come in and shake things up. I like to put new things in place that make a difference, not just to change something to change, but to actually impact airmen to impact the mission and to make everybody's lives better. So as long as I get to do that, I will be happy wherever I go. Well, that's perfect. And what kind of changes have you seen in airmen from maybe in the start of your career to now in terms of what they're wanting out of the Air Force? So the biggest change I've seen in the Air Force is that we are getting people into the Air Force that have higher skills to begin with, which is exciting. People are coming in with PhDs who are enlisting. People are coming in with technical degrees who are enlisting, or the enlisted workforce is getting master's degrees in very technical things as they're in the workforce. I find that so exciting that I don't, I can't even contain myself because it's amazing. But the one thing that they do want is they want more interaction and they want to understand the why. They don't want to just be told to go do. They want to know what's the impact, why are we doing this, how does this affect the mission? I think it's a good thing because it actually forces the leadership to think long and hard about the decisions they're making and what the overall ripple effect is down the chain, down to the lowest entity, to the newest guy on the block. If you could sum up in maybe a phrase or a sentence, 
recruiting somebody who maybe never even thought to even join the Air Force, what would be how you encourage them to take the plunge? I think that I would start off with, do you want an amazing opportunity that will allow you to, to see the world, to impact the world, and to make a difference for yourself, for your family, and for the nation? Then come to the Air Force. That's perfect. I don't think I can follow that up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It's been an insightful conversation. and I'm I'm glad to have interacted with another fellow, even though I wasn't in the service, I kind of was, but another fellow service member. uh, And I thank you for your service again. And thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. And thanks for being a part of the family. (laughs) Thank you. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced and hosted by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact Joe O'Neill at j-o-n-e-i-l-l at governmentcio.com.